sort of engage in um, verbal uh, jousting with the, the top intellectual heavyweights of the time and come out on top. They saw this, this Jesus who was able to command powers of darkness to flee. And they said, this is the Messiah. This is the agent of God. This is God with us. And we want in on that glory. And they ask him. They ask him a question. It's a great question. It's a question like I want, you want, is a sense of comfort, a sense of wholeness, a sense of what it truly means to be human, full acceptance in the view of all. And they ask, Lord, give us that place. And then he asks this interesting question. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized with? Right? He's so, he, he, he puts a time out on this and says, do you know what you're asking? Because what you want, you notice he doesn't critique the intention. How dare you want to be fulfilled in life? That's, that's, that's evil. No, he doesn't critique that. That's actually a good thing. He just knows the journey there is going to have an unexpected twist and turn, many unexpected twists and turns. Can you drink the cup Can you drink the cup that I'm going to be drinking? And as you recall the story, a few chapters later in Mark 14, there is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what is he crying out to the Father about the cup? Remember that? Yeah, take this cup from me, Lord. Take this cup. He wants, he sees the darkness of the suffering and rejection that he is about to face, the deep shame. And he asks the Father, Father, take this from me, but not my will, your will to be done. The disciples wanted that place of comfort, that place of of wholeness, which we all want. But the road to it, Jesus has to ask them, are you ready for this? Pain was at the center of it. And, and we uh, see this all through. I mean, Paul of Tarsus, one of the most influential followers of Jesus, he writes all over his letters. For example, Philippians 1.29, he says to y'all, that is those of you that are following Jesus, he says to, to the community, it has been gifted, literally graced, if they had a verb for that, graced to you on behalf of Christ, on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. You hear that again. My modern Western mind goes, okay, I don't even know what to do with that. I've been graced. I've been given grace. The gift of suffering for Jesus in in Romans 8, probably the center of this incredible uh, text of Romans, the center of the gospel is being unfolded. And he says, one thing about those of you who are in Christ, you are children of God. You've been called into his family. If you're children, you're heirs. If you're heirs of God, you're fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed... We suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see that combination? And this runs all through our sacred tradition. It's, it's on every, every major chunk of scripture has something along these lines that the glory of God will be seen and will come about only in and through suffering. And we're a community here at the River Church as we head to that glorious dawn of Easter. We're, we decided let's reflect on the cross but instead of teaching sermons on the cross, which we could do and we have done and we will do again, let's hear stories of folks living in the shadow of the cross. And today, uh, I, I have, I'm, this is a life moment for me because the couple that, that I'm bringing up, um, you would know, Chris and Heidi Iomo, uh, and I'll bring them up in a minute once I stop bragging about them because it'll be awkward if they're up here while I'm bragging about them. Chris and Heidi Iomo, I've known um, uh, most of my life. And... Um, uh, are, are probably the most close close family outside of blood family uh, that I enjoy. And 
they look like the most amazing couple. Like if, when you see them up, you're like, those are pretty people. You see their kids, their kids are beautiful kids. They just have like, you would look at their life and go, that is it. They both are incredibly, I think, su- incredibly successful in their, in their careers and vocations. What they do, Chris is probably the best. Um, Mary's kind of therapist. I can't use him because I'm a friend, but I basically get free therapy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> check, check. We got this mic here, if that would work perfect. Oh, yeah, there it is. So he's he's... Let there be light. <laughs> he is um, an individual that you might look at, um, and both of them, and, and she's, oh my gosh, she, she, uh, Heidi is probably like super mom meets super nurse meets a student who, you know, goes to UCLA, Biola, finishes her degree in two years, is like a get after it, amazing person. She ran our children's ministry for, for a number of years here at the river and, and just th- it thrived and everything children's pastor has left it better than, than, than even they received it. And she has just done amazing work. And yet, to look at them and say, I want that. I want to get there. You're going to hear their stories today, pieces of their stories, and realize that that journey was very much, and is very much, one of the cup of suffering and letting the Lord into that. So I want to invite Chris and Heidi up here. Would you come on up and join me? Yeah, give my hand. And... And what we're asking, and we're going to have two more weeks where we'll have family members of the River Church that are going to be sharing their stories in the shadow of the cross. And what I've asked them to do is um, a few stages. First of all, when you read through the crucifixion account, Mark 15, it is just brutal. And it doesn't hold back. It doesn't try to sugarcoat the crucifixion. Like, well, Jesus didn't mind it that much. No, you see the depth of his suffering. And so I asked for the first sort of chapter of our conversation to paint for us the cauldron of suffering in your life. And all pain is different. Every single one of us, like, like snowflakes of pain, right? They're all different. And we, we can understand one another to certain points, and then we miss each other. And so that's why hearing these stories is so beautiful. But to, I wanted to ask you, share with us a little bit about the cauldron of suffering that you um, um, have been through and, and, and has marked your life before we then turn to looking at um, where we see God's fingerprints and work in your life through that. So I'll start with Chris. Is this working? Am I doing this? We'll, we'll do this. Okay. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, now we're getting both. Hello? We'll just go with the handheld. All right. We didn't have this problem at the beach. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, as James asked me, he's like, hey, would you be willing to come up and talk? Sure. And then I realized what we're talking about. And then my entire job is to validate someone's story and to help create some space for their story to come to the surface and be healed, right? So I realized as he's asking me, like, well, my story doesn't really need that. Like, what am I doing? Like, compared to the suffering I know in the area, compared to the suffering I see and prayer requests and just throughout everything, I was just minimizing mine, saying, like, well, it's not really that good of a story. Um, and so Preston over farther realizing that I'm just paralleling everything else. The people say, well, my story, you know, it doesn't need that much. It's not that bad. Um, so when I went closer in and, and tried to decide, okay, what is, what is the story of my pain then? I came to the point um, that it was a very quiet, lonely pain. Uh, it was an internal pain. And it was a, a self-perpetuating, rewarding pain. Um, when I was three, my brother was born severely handicapped. And I think a lot of you probably know the story. Um, so at three, my world changed. At three, my world became... No longer Chris, the rambunctious, whatever I was, running around. It became Chris, the big brother. 
it became Chris, the person who was now seen because my brother needed so much that uh, attention resources had to be diverted. So I realized that I'm the big brother. And all of a sudden, any positive attention I got was, oh, we saw you at church with your brother, and you're such a good big brother. Right? Or it was my parents thanking me, or family members thanking me, noticing me that I'm such a good brother. So I started to realize that, well, that's who I am now. I'm the brother to something. And it was lonely, and it was anxious, because I was constantly looking for, where do I fit this? How can I be enough in this? And uh, always looking to be the brother. I was no longer the something. And James asked us to find, you know, a, a picture, a story um, of something. And this is where it got me at the beach, too, so be ready. Um, but it, it was not one. It's a montage of hospital beds. Of confusion. And a lot of loneliness. But all at the same time, being rewarded for, oh, you're such a good big brother. Oh, look at the way he sits by him in the hospital. Oh, look at the way he changes him, feeds him. And that really became who I was. And it felt good. We want to be known. We want to be seen for something so perpetuated. And I started becoming just the brother to anybody's pain. Not James's. so <laughs> true. And it, it was, I think the best way was just it was lonely and anxious and, and just self-perpetuating. That was the best way I think I can put it. I remember probably being, it had to be early. My brother wasn't supposed to live past three weeks a month. He lived for 19 years. And it was 19 years of getting harder and harder. So I think one of the pictures is, I don't remember how old, it was probably less than five, sitting by a hospital bed in a gown, drinking these little saline squirters that they would put into his breathing treatments and just looking at my brother. Um, I felt the same way. James asked us, hey, you guys want to share your story? And I thought, oh, yeah, sure, why not? Um, and then we sat and talked about what he wanted us to share or how he wanted us to share. And it's not easy to revisit your suffering or your pain. And it's really not easy to do it when you think, oh my gosh, how do I encapsulate this in a little five minute thing so that I can convey to you what it was, but also not um, like evoke a sense of like pity or because it's, oh, I almost lost it. Um, okay. My concern, I think in this is that we all suffer. And so when I, when I think about my pain, um, I want you guys to think about your pain and not my pain as I tell my story. Um, when I was little and for my whole childhood, um, I had parents who kept me, but probably shouldn't have kept me. They probably should have given me um, up for adoption or um, found somebody to take care of me instead. So my mom was 16 when she had my sister, and then she was 21 when she had me. And um, 
I wasn't loved at all. And that's, um, it sounds so weird to say that out loud, to really like admit that. Um, but they just didn't love and they didn't um, take care. So it wasn't just like a physical, like, oh, I love you, that they didn't do. They didn't feed me and they didn't clothe me and they didn't, um, I was really in the way. Like I was, I mean, my, my dad has since told me like, oh, don't, before I had kids, he was like, don't ruin your life and have kids. That's going to ruin your life. And I was like, what? Like, I'm your kid. So really confusing childhood, but all the while not knowing that my experience wasn't normal because six and seven and eight year olds don't go to school and say like, I don't have food. I don't have, you know, these are clothes that, you know, my friend gave me, um, I remember I stole somebody's lunch when I was probably like eight because we didn't have any food. And so I remember I brought an empty bag, like a brown paper bag to school, and I stole their lunch and I put it in my bag. And I think my eight-year-old brain thought like, oh, nobody will know. Like, I'll just eat this kid's lunch and nobody will know, right? Um, Well, they did know. And I got home that day. And nobody talked to me about it at school, but I got home that day. And my stepmom at the time said, do you have something to say to me? I said, nope, nope, I'm good, I'm good. And she said, you stole somebody's lunch. And I got, I really got whooped on for that. Um, And it was just an eight-year-old trying to eat. And I think about my own kids. This suffering never really connected. I don't think I really realized it. Like Chris, I think I jumped into school. That was my safe place, right? My parents weren't at school. My siblings weren't at in my class with me. So I dove into, I'm going to be perfect in school and I'm going to get straight A's and I'm going to do something for myself. Um, so I did, I really excelled in school and I really tried to be perfect. Um, and then I had kids of my own, And I think that's when the cauldron really started to burn because I was able to kind of maintain this, like, I've got it together. I got this. Like, I got through school. I got married. I'm young. I'm happy. But then I had kids, and you can't, I mean, I couldn't be perfect before, but now I really can't be perfect, right? Like, if you thought you had your stuff together, Then you have a couple kids and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm falling apart at the seams. All because I don't even know how to love. Like nobody taught me how to love. So I have my son and I'm thinking like, I love him so deeply and I would never hurt him. And I would never, ever, ever feed myself before I feed him. Like that's just unheard of. And anybody that's a parent knows that. Um, but that was my childhood. And so I started to really kind of spin when I had my kids and it kind of started to really become apparent for me, um, what my suffering was. And so I think my son's eight now. So it's been these last eight or nine years where I've really come to terms that I even had suffering because I think I just blocked it or maybe suppressed it because I was like, everybody doesn't eat. Everybody doesn't like, it just was normal to me. I never knew any different. So. Wow. I think we only have a minute to just cry. I need like an hour to cry. Um, 
And I know your stories. <laughs> you're filling all the blinks in them, and, and there's so much to that. And, um, both of them that they're that uh, their cauldron of suffering, I think, um, so is so um, so massive and so so hot and so real. And um, even in the yeah two minute, three minute, five minute presentation to capture that. But when we get to um, thinking about again paralleling this with that crucifixion narrative and all of Mark 15, like the first half is just this absolute brutality and, and your heart breaks as you watch Jesus mocked, ab- abandoned by his disciples. He's all alone. You watch him um, mocked by those who were supposed to be the representatives of the God of Israel in Jerusalem instead are mocking him saying, they'll let Elijah come and get him. Or, oh, he said he could build a temple, build a temple in, in three days. Let's see if he can get off this cross. And, and and an utter rejection, and, and the, on top of that, the pain. But then something happens in the middle of the narrative. Mark sort of, as, as I'm following Mark in this, Mark tips the, his hand a little bit, and, and he reveals, he kind of pulls back the veil to mix metaphors. And you suddenly see that God's fingerprints are, are on this. That this is not meaningless suffering, gratuitous spectacles of violence that will be... Um, uh, enjoyed or, or uh, uh, appalled by, by those watching. Instead, the sky goes dark for three hours. This, this veil of the temple that separates essentially where the high priest could go in, it's essentially a symbolic separation of man and God, it tears from the top to bottom. And that's a big, tall veil. The point being, this is a God thing. And, and Jesus, as he cries out his last breath, he actually breathes out, a, he cries out a psalm. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. A psalm of utter pain. And he identifies there in that story of pain. He shares that as his last breath, on the, uh, one of his last breaths on the cross. And it's the centurion, the Gentile Roman centurion, sitting close to the cross. And, and Mark tells us, seeing the way he died, declares, truly this was the son of God. It wasn't in Jesus's water into wine miracles or bringing back someone from the dead or kicking demons out or bringing amazing teachings that the glory of God like shone forth in the gospel of Mark. It's actually in the darkest moment, someone who is truly like a, not in the, not, doesn't have the backstory of Jesus, but seeing the suffering and seeing the way he suffered and seeing that something about the suffering was different. He beheld the glory of God. And as we think about our stories of suffering, right, there is a place we can go. Suffering happens to everyone. It's kind of a universal thing. And those who deny it, they probably have something deeper that they're stuffing. But everyone faces suffering to one degree or another. And it's been that way for quite a while in human history. The question is, and, and where our tradition invites us, is to say, open yourself to the, let the Lord in on this. And see if it, if there just might be something absolute, absolutely beautiful God can begin to do in that suffering, the, turning those ashes into beauty again. And so I asked um, Chris and Heidi and, and our story shares the rest of this month are going to be reflecting on this question as well. And it's kind of a broad question, but it is, where have you seen the, um, the, the healing of God, the, the way in which God may have used this this suffering and pain, where have you seen um, God's fingerprints in your life through this pain where he has not sort of wasted an ounce 
of it or, or a nanosecond of suffering. He hasn't wasted it. Where have you seen that? And, and, um, uh, and the story we're telling today and we're going to be telling this month is not a, I suffered, I found Jesus, and it's all good. So it happened for you, right? That's not what we are selling here. That is not legitimate, right? But it is to say, I began to notice the movement of God in the deep of my suffering. And I want to ask you, both of you to reflect on that with us broadly. Sure. Um, so my pain, my, my story, my pattern, uh, not only did it define me, but it imprisoned me. And I feel like I got pretty good at it. I got pretty good at being able to sense. I got pretty good at being able to pick up on subtleties and undertones. And, and, uh, and I was just good at it. It became who I was. Um, and I'm getting some feedback now on this one. There we go. Is that better? Okay. Um, and like Heidi said in the last service, you know, and then we found each other. What a surprise. I was now going to be able to be the husband to pain, right? Um, and it's... <laughs> in pain. In pain. <laughs> I don't have a name. I'm just the husband to that. Um, and it was, it was through relationship. It was through uh, going into grad school and, and in our group, you had to go into your own therapy. And it was like, okay, I'll just check this box. And discovering that, no, I really do have pain, right? That... God took me to that place where he was able to open that door for me and then God met me at that place. And I could start to be freed by it, right? Relationships like with James and my other close friends and Heidi, now all of a sudden the relationships I was bound by to be something, I was able to understand my pain and it actually was a redemptive thing now in relationships. Heidi all the time can remind me about, you know, you're in your thing right now, like, it's okay, I'm here. Um, and uh, so I, I felt freed, um, and, and it's still, that's still my go-to. It's still my default. If I get anxious, if I get overwhelmed, I'm still going to go to, uh-oh, what did I do wrong? What do I need to do? Where do I need to be? Um, but it's a conscious daily reminder that I've been freed from that and that all the training of bondage, all the training of pain has developed a very specific skill set. And now I feel like that's able to be utilized um, in a way that glorifies God, in a way that brings freedom to others, hopefully. Um, but all the while, still working on making sure that I remain free. So at the last service, I said, I am not a therapist, so I am not using my pain (laughs) in my profession, and I don't want to be a therapist. (laughs) Um, All jokes aside, I love therapists. But seriously, we love therapists. So I would be remiss if I said that I am happy I suffered as a kid, like, that doesn't feel true at all. So to stand up here and, um, like James said, we're not selling some, like, that was awesome, it was so good, because now I can not be mean to my kids, because I am mean to my kids sometimes. Like, I, I am. But um, as I spent this week preparing, people warned me. They said, okay, Heidi, you're going to share your story. You're going to get attacked. Like you're going to hit the wall this week. And I was like, okay, I can, I can, it's fine. Right. We're going to just keep going. And, um, this week was really hard. And I think as I started to dig a little bit, um, it all comes back, right? You start to feel the suffering again. And, um, I was sharing my, we don't really talk a lot about my side of the family. Um, Chris's parents are really involved in our kids' lives, um, and mine aren't. And part of that is my choice, and part of that is their choice, um, my parents, not my children. Um, 
But lo and behold, as I'm preparing this week, my kids start asking questions. And I'm like, come on, God, why? why? Like, why are we talking about this? And then Friday, so they're asking me all kinds of questions like, what, where, where's Nana? What is she doing? Why doesn't she call? What's going on? And so now I'm reliving my suffering. Now my kids are suffering because my parents are still failing, right? So now they don't have um, grandparents that are involved. I mean, they have amazing grandparents, but they don't have another set of grandparents because they're off being selfish or doing whatever it is that they want to do. So now I'm reliving that abandonment, that feeling of like, dang it, you guys are doing this again. Um, And then on top of that, um, a very, very dear family friend this week who was very much like a father um, to me um, passed away yesterday in the heat of all of this. So... um, It's still, I'm kind of still in denial. Like, he was such a good man, and he was a dad later on in life after um, I grew up, and he kind of filled that void for me. And he was young, and he shouldn't have died, and I'm spinning, you know, that I have to share about not having a dad and then losing a really special man who was like a dad. And I don't have answers, um, but I do know that as I see my kids and I look into their eyes and I love them with every fiber that I have in my body, and I will never, ever, ever, ever take them for granted. And as I sit this week, my daughter and I are in the bathroom and she's asking me all kinds of questions and I'm like half annoyed because I'm like I don't want to talk about my sister my sister's older and not my younger sister that some of you know let's just preface that before I tell this story um my older sister who was born when my mom was 16 has um is just recycling the story so She's living the same life that my parents lived, and she has two kids of her own, and they're not well. And um, my kids see that when they, um, the very few times we've gotten together, they see how my sister treats her kids. And it's very much like how my mom and dad treated us. And so my daughter um, said, Mom, why is she so mean? Thank you why is she so mean? Like, why is she, she's just so evil. And I kind of stood back because you don't realize how much your kids are picking up, you know, when they're, when they're around. And I looked at her in the mirror, I was braiding her hair and I said, well, honey, no one ever taught her how to love. Like she doesn't know how to love herself and she doesn't know how to love her babies. And she um, looked at me in the mirror and she said, well, why do you know how to love so good? And for me to hear that from my daughter is so huge because I 
don't feel like I know how to love well because I wasn't loved. And so it's a daily struggle to choose to love well. And it's a daily struggle to say, okay, God, it's in there. Like all of that nasty hurt and pain is in there. An iron worker, you know, you have to stick the iron in the fire and you have to beat it with a hammer. And it is hot and it's uncomfortable, but in the end, out of the other side, you get a useful, amazing, shining tool. And so my prayer is that our suffering, right, would be, we're forging and we're being forged, but that we would be tools, that we would turn around and use our story and be jars of clay and not be ashamed of our suffering because that's also really, I fight that. I'm so ashamed so often of my childhood and I didn't do it to myself, but I I can kind of cloak it and be like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Let's not talk about it. I don't want to, oh, that's yucky, right? Like we're, we're okay. We're good, right? But no, it, it is our story and we're in it. And we're all suffering together. And the beautiful thing about God and his community is that we can lean on each other. And I have some dear, dear friends that are in the thick of it right now. And I just hugged a sweet friend at the beach today. And I'm reminded about how our journey is similar. And so we can sharpen each other. And we can lean on each other, and it sucks, and it's hot in the fire, you guys. It is so hot, and it's really painful. But you can come out the other end, and it might be years, you guys. It might not be until years down the road. But then you can turn around and say, I made it through that fire because God was holding me, and now I'm going to help somebody else make it through that fire. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, well, thank you, thank you both so much, and and uh, we're gonna we're gonna turn. I'm gonna invite the band uh, to come back up. And what what I want to do um, is is just circle and highlighter um, a point Heidi just made there, which is if you look around, and, and we kind of have the benefit right now of looking at the lives and or the faces, uh, the beautiful faces in this room. I know for a fact, if I could just see into each of your lives 10 years back and 10 years in the future or more or less, right? I'm going to see, or even right now, stories of pain, stories of suffering, stories where you don't understand where the end, happy ending is in that story or where you do see it. But the, I think one of the major pieces, according to our sacred tradition, this is, this is something God will not waste, is not wasting, and has always used, number one. And number two, we are in this together. You are not alone in that suffering. And just hearing this again, I, mean, I feel just even so much more bonded just hearing the stories again. And, and so as we go to communion, um, uh, to my right and I believe my left, um, this is, here it is, a ritual at the center of our faith that is a ritual where Jesus says, this bread is my body broken for you. For you. Take this and, and remember me. Remember that story. Remember, don't forget that story. Tell that story. Tell that story through your lives. Tell that story to your children. And this is my cup. This is my blood poured out as a new covenant, a new deal 
bringing you in proximity to God, letting you jump in God's lap, letting him hold you when you're crying and saying, I don't know why. And, and he can just go, shh, I love you. I love you. And so that's what we are celebrating now. And, and if you're someone who's been sitting in here and you sense that stir, and maybe you, I don't know, I don't know your story. I don't know what your deal is, but maybe you came, someone just brought you along and like, whoa, what have I gotten into? And this is pretty deep. It is a deep Sunday. That's for sure. But you felt that or you sensed that that could just very well be perhaps God whispering to you. I just want to encourage you to kind of kind of sit in that for a minute. Maybe you just ask, God, is that you? Are you are you tapping on my heart right now? Are you, are you wooing me right now? Are you, do you have something that you want to say, God, because I want to hear it? I need to hear it. And if maybe your fist has, has been sort of balled up in either anger or frustration or just I don't know what to do. That maybe, I don't know, this morning might start that journey. It might be part of the start of that journey where you begin opening that hand up and receiving the Lord. And saying, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I don't know what that means. I don't know all that it's going to require. But I know, I, I know that you're calling to me. And so today, as we take communion, um, I want you just to maybe be in a place of just reflection. And talk to whoever you want, whoever brought you, or if you came yourself, come talk to me, Todd or someone else. But let's go to that table now. I want to pray and thank you both again. Lord, we look to you, your example of suffering, your wisdom about suffering, and the transcendent perspective that your word provides about, Lord, our suffering is not wasted. Now as we go to the table, we go with thanksgiving and with deep reflection. Thank you for Chris and Heidi Iomo. Thank you for Malachi and Kalia, their amazing children. And Lord, the role they've had in my life and Bray's life and Michelle and Brixton's life, that's so unparalleled. Give them a rich blessing this week and this month and this season. In Jesus' name, amen.